solve those contradictions. We are here to play in that realm of contradiction and cognitive dissonance. We are here to infect your mind. Welcome back to the Cognitive Dissonance Podcast. New year, same show. Christy and I put our heads together and decided that we would start the new year with a new multi-part series on social psychology. In this episode, we chart the landscape of social psychology, trying to give a rundown of the basic premises, topics and subtopics covered, and issues dealt within the realm of social psychology, such as parasocial interaction, social media use, radicalization, and we even touch on communication a little bit. All as a conversation to explore how individual human beings' psychology is influenced by the social interactions that we engage with and consume on a daily basis, especially now more than ever in the attention economy. Social psychology seems to be prevalent in ways that it was never able to be before. As always, if you enjoy what we do, please spread the word, like, share, bring a friend, plant a bug in somebody's ear. Christy and I come out of pocket for both time and whatever fees we accrue using the platforms that we do. So any support or growing fan base for that is appreciated more than you guys can know. It gives us a reason to continue doing what we're doing. So again, if you enjoy what we have to offer, please spread the word, and I hope you all enjoy. Okay, where do you want to start? Uh, well, honestly, if we're talking about social psychology, it helps to put it in a little bit of context with when it was really popular and why, and why it's kind of died down, um, or why we want to talk about this topic at all? Well, I think there's been, I don't want to call it a renaissance or a revitalization, um, but there's been a renewal, we'll call it that, of social psychology, okay. at, least, um, at least in one flavor of the field in let's say the past 10 years i know jonathan height and greg lukianoff do a lot of work together um and they're social psychologists um and their work's been fairly influential and i think if we're being openly honest that in today's attention consumption environment that social psychology is more prevalent than ever, at least in the sense that now more than at any time in human history, we have the pressures of our social groups weighing down on us to make our individual psychological decisions. Yeah, I think the 90s, there was a little bit of a resurgence as well, because with the internet and getting new information that fast and then the 24 hour news cycle and then like showing 
people information, it changes things and the way people think and act and respond. And, um, and that was very interesting. And then at a certain point, like you get it and you move on, but there's always something it's, I think social psychology is really unique in psychology because every decade you're going to have to study something completely different with people thinking completely different things. And it's so fluid that it's hard to really build anything because the second you've got it done, we've moved on, which is true for a lot of psychology, but definitely social psychology. Well, because I mean, yes and no. So like three things, if I can remember and keep them in order. First, um, I want to return to how you differentiate sociology from social psychology, but we'll come back to that one. So second, um, I guess second and third, we'll just put them together. Um, I'm I'm struggling to put this into words, but I'm thinking of the idea that like a piece of music or a piece of art or a painting, right, is supposed to be seen from a certain distance. If you get too close, you can see nothing but individual details and you can't see how they work together, right? You get too far out and all you see is the gestalt. You see the totality of it without enough differentiating detail within the individual pieces to see how they merge together, right? I was explaining this to my students a couple of days ago. When you listen to music, you're not listening to each individual note from each individual instrument. That, that would be maddening. It, would, it wouldn't make any sense. It'd be chaos. And then likewise, if you zoom out too much, all you hear is just static white noise. You have to be at that perfect distance between where the individual notes blend together and it is the whole greater than the sum of its parts. It is the harmony within all of the individual component pieces that has it transcend the gestalt and where you get the actual totalizing view of it. Um, so with, with that in mind, as far as social psychology and every decade, you have to redo everything to some degree. Yes, because the social forces and social conventions that we are prey to, um, change but then also at the same time that's part of what makes human beings so remarkable is that we have this psychological framework and disposition that allows us to be generalists no matter how much the environment changes we're able to interact integrate and succeed ultimately mm -hmm. i think with social norms, and it kind of sounds like you're talking about group dynamics specifically, which is pretty, it's a huge chunk of social psychology and takes, tends to not change that much decade to decade with, you know, if you put someone in a lab coat in the front of the room and they start telling you to do things, you're probably going to trust that person as an authority figure. And that's been pretty consistent, I would say, um, for whatever reason. And then other things like norms and roles, those things are very fluid. And I think understanding why we do those things 
And then also understanding what those things are is kind of two parts as well, or two separate things. So we can, why do we have social norms? Why do we do this? And it comes down to, you know, heuristics and taking shortcuts and getting everything very quickly understood so that every time you walk into a gas station, you can just talk to the person behind the counter wearing a badge as an employee without having to ask or wonder, wander around because you've done that before. You know what that looks like. You can assume who knows if that's actually an employee, maybe they're just in costume. Um, But that is some of the shortcuts that we do that are super helpful to save time. And that's something that I think I want to say like the sixties, they started really solidifying those, um, why we have those, why we will always have those. Yeah. And, and that's something I think about a lot is heuristics are absolutely fundamental to engagement with reality, right? Um, evolution is a heuristic generating device process whatever um Mm -hmm. for for exactly that reason we have literally a near infinite amount of sensory inputs that we have to cognitively process and separate the wheat from the chaff through every second of every minute of every day Mm -hmm. right if if i mean that's that's why our the focal spot for human vision is as narrow as it is because if if we were to have a full 180 degree view with the same resolution as our focal point right could you i don't even think there's a computer on earth even if we tie them all together that could do that computation in the amount of time necessary to make any relevance of that information Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, we, we do, we, we have to lower the resolution enough to find that, that balance point between accuracy and efficiency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And keeping errors as rare as we can get them within reason, there's going to be some errors, but where's the line between you know, this is an error that happens every day, but it's no big deal. And this is a very rare error with those heuristics and understanding, because it would be very bad if you did not realize there was a car careening down the street and you enter the crosswalk. That's a mistake that you don't want to make. But it's not a big deal if you start talking to someone thinking that they're your friend and realize a sentence in, oh, I don't actually know this person. <laughs> so, well, in, in that. Similar- errors but different consequences and that overlays really nicely with as an analogy to how the human genome works so i i read recently and i can't remember the source but i need to find it again so i can read it more closely um that a phenomenon that tends to happen within the human genome is as our dna has sporadic and random mutations that older parts of the human genome tend to be prioritized over younger parts as far as error correction. So if there's a random mutation, which can happen anywhere along the modern human genome, that 
if it's parts that have evolved or changed or have been sex successful mutations in the past thousand or so years, those get played around with a lot more. Those are allowed to do their own thing because they're not as fundamental and necessary for survival of the human species on, you know, with relationship to our environment. Whereas the foundation of the human genome, you know, potentially reaching back 2 million years, 3 million years, that those areas of our genome tend to be at least addressed, if not repaired, almost instantaneously. Right, which which overlaps really nicely with what you're saying, that the heuristics that tend to work most fundamentally need to have as much error correction built in as possible. Mm -hmm. Those that are newer, right, those more um, contemporary and or decade-by-decade decade social conventions that I mean, that's part of the reason why they're decade by decade is because we play around with them. The error correction probability drops really low. And then we realize that that's just not effective or efficient anymore. And we just scrap it and generate a new one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great. I'm thinking like having kidneys, pretty important, going to be high up the chain in your DNA to make whatever proteins that your kidneys make to make them look that way and do what they do versus being lactose tolerant and lactose intolerant. It's a huge variability. Some people can drink milk. Other people can't, but most people were born with both their kidneys. And, and in one instance, the older, the more variation, the less probability of survival. Mm -hmm. In the newer variation, the probability of survival is near neutral. Mm -hmm. You know, comparing the two lactose intolerant versus lactose tolerant, like you can survive just fine nowadays without consuming dairy. Yeah. You might have to take some supplements for calcium and things like that, but, you know, modern medicine, we have those. There are alternative mm -hmm. forms. Um, the only alternative kidneys that I know of are super expensive and keep you tied to a room. Right. Well, that is if you had kidneys and that later lost them, mm -hmm. that tends to work. But if you just don't have them, yeah, I'm thinking well, of and, like, and then like fetal, in utero, like yeah, oh, this baby doesn't have kidneys. Fetal viability drops to near 0%. Right. Yeah. So those are, uh, but it still happens. Um, yeah, so something I think is really good context for social psychology is kind of why we started studying it with such fervor in the 60s, which is kind of when all of the prolific uh, studies that you hear of and the horror movies that they make out of them all came from that era. Um, because before. We well, the answer is World War II. After World War II, social psychology started to be a huge interest, like in pop culture. People wanted to know why did that happen? Why did all of these people go absolutely nuts and then just snap back into being a normal country again? Uh, well, not a snap, <laughs> simplifying, but you know, they're all humans again, and 
people started looking at conformity and propaganda and influence and authority and figuring out how it worked, why it worked, who it works on, how long it works, and answering all of those questions in a scientific way, which obviously these are things that people have been using for ever. We know how to influence people or have authority over people before we started writing it down and doing studies on it. And then really in the 60s, they started looking at exactly uh, how to do it, which is well, good. It's better to understand the phenomenon than to just ignore it and pretend like it isn't there because people will or, do it anyways. Or, or to understand it more completely. So I, I wonder if that's a two-way street where – Propaganda and groupthink manipulation is the same core psychological phenomenon as um, psychogenic epidemics. The difference is origin point, if that makes sense. Right. So, Nazi Germany, as an example, you have a hyper charismatic leader with a certain set of populist ideals that he's enforcing and that generates compliance underneath the umbrella that because things are working out right now, that must prove that we're right. Continue on, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the, the, the banality of evil as it's called, right? The bureaucrats behind the desk signing all of the death papers so far removed from the acts that they're just completely complacent about it. Mm. Whereas like, After plagues in the Middle Ages, you would get the psychogenic epidemics. We could consider um, witch hunts psychogenic epidemic. We could consider Elvis fever. Same forces at play, but rather than top-down imposition, it's more of a bottom-up grassroots reception. Mm-hmm. Another example of that is satanic panic, um, where everyone right. it, it, and in the eighties feels like we shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, and, and if you look at it, I think, I think it's the same, or there's maybe not the same, but um, trying to find a good thing to do the Venn Venn diagram overlap. Mm-hmm. Right? There's there's yeah. a lot of overlap there because it is for lack of better terms, mass delusion on a population scale. Mm-hmm. The question is, is it or, or does it originate from an oligarchical set of propagandistic ideas pushed down from the top and people conform because social psychology people don't want to be the odd person out or whether it's inherent receptability of a population that generates the phenomenon right it's still still mask mass coercion underneath a set of ideals or ideas yeah that's what one of the early like cool experiments that you still learn about is the ash 
line guessing experiment, which when I explain it, you've probably heard of it, where they put um, five people in a room. One of them was the test subject who thought that the other four people in the room were test subjects, uh, but they were not. And those four people had been told on like every third uh, line to guess incorrectly. And the fifth guy always guessed with them. Mm -hmm. They would say number two matches, number two matches. Um, and Almost unanimously. And he would say the last, because they did this all on men. uh, He would say whatever they said and like kind of look bewildered and like, you know, something going on, but they were so confident and he didn't want to guess incorrectly because he wanted to give the correct answer, which would be, you know, number one matches the line. Um, but he would say what they said. And then afterwards, um, you know, they brief him and let him in on it and <laughs> tell him what happened. Um, but even though like you, we just have this ability to put aside reality in order to work with the social group that we're in. And our priorities as humans tend to be what is the human next to me doing? And that is more important than what I see right in front of me. Because if there's, you know, being part of the out group is uh, evolutionarily a massive deadly consequence versus, you know, thinking that this line is the correct length, much less consequences. So, yeah, I think once it starts and people, it feels like there's a majority thinking this, you don't actually know how many people actually think this and how many have just taken on and said, yeah, I believe you, or this is what I think, or this is my worldview. Communism is great because of that social pressure. And that's something that you can't really measure or predict either on how strong that's going to be. Because in other environments, you are rewarded for being contrarian and having a different opinion and being unique. Like, so there are times in like high school classrooms where the person who wears their brand new fancy shirt and looks different is rewarded for that, given compliments, given lots of attention. And then other times they wear a brand new fancy shirt and they're bullied and made fun of and so it's hard to predict what's going to happen and why sometimes being that out group is rewarded and valued and sometimes being part of the out group is absolutely not what that person is going to do. And yeah, I think that's a great experiment too because it's super benign. Like who cares? That guy was fine. Yeah, um, and I do. I, I want to come back to that because the the implications of that research, which I am familiar with, um, should yeah. be terrifying to anybody with a brain. <laughs> um, but going back to the being the outlier or not, this is something interesting. It is, I mean, it's in the fashion world, but I guess we could scale it out to to look at any forms of individualistic expression. Um, by definition, those that set the parameters of cool are never cool. 
right? Because they tend to have the personality disposition to where they're always on the cutting edge. They're always on the perimeter. They're always on the periphery. And it's as their expressions catch hold in popular culture that become cool to the average person. Well, that person it originated from is now part of the group, which is something they've never wanted to be to begin with, which hence why they were always so expressive. So therefore, like by definition, they're always one step ahead, but never associated with, so to speak. Um, which makes it really tricky to try and walk that line of, of like you said, which ones are going to be successful and which ones aren't. Um, that, now going, go ahead. I was going to say the other factor, like once the ball is rolling and we've decided this is the in-group, this is the out-group. It is hard, if not impossible, to get people to backpedal on that and go back to the start, like for that particular thing. Like once that decision is made, um, the term a lot of people use is like the sunk cost. You've already spent, you know, your money on your new pair of pants or to match and get the the new nice thing, or you've gone your whole life being different and being the out-group, and now all of a sudden people are copying you. And backpedaling to changing your opinion and saying, oh, I actually do want to be part of the in-group almost never happens for the same thing. <laughs> like, well, obviously, that's... you will have multiple times to decide this. But once you're there, it's not changing. Well, in there's some metaphysical truth there that, I, you know, we can't ignore that that is the way things work at least as far as with abstractions art music fashion ideas philosophies things like that um things that can be separated from the mundane dirty gritty biological reality of everything um and again that goes back to our generalist disposition psychologically as a species to always be we'll keep it in, in a more bi biologically scientific language but always be a creature in an environment seeking an, an equilibrium seeking a uh, homeostasis that's the term I'm looking for Right. Um, you know, why why do we hydrate? Well, because our blood needs to be a certain viscosity with which to effectively and efficiently run oxygen and nutrients through our whole system. And if it's too thin, it doesn't carry enough. If it's too thick, it doesn't move fast enough. So you're we never hit that spot where if I just maintain this, I'm perfect. Our body's always in a constant state of fluctuation. Right. Now that can get abstracted out and pathologized, right? So there's um you mentioned the totalizing worldviews of communism earlier, right? So you have um, some more modern thinkers like um, Paulo Freire uh, from Brazil that you know takes that concept of constant regeneration, constant seeking of homeostasis, and applies it to like that idea of any time the 
patterns of behavior that break down the status quo with which for us to generate these new ideas to be better in the world. Once they become the status quo, they therefore need to be broken down as well. Because by definition, the status quo as a heuristic is prescribing an idea for how to relate to the world to people, which by definition is oppression because you're not letting them be whatever they want to be, however they want to be, wherever they want to be. Right. So as long as you continue that generation, continue that perpetual revolution, then all of these new ideas that are, in his terms, beneficial to everybody never become static in traditional and conservative and perpetual. Going back to the experiment you mentioned earlier, I find it fascinating that it was almost 100% people that knew the correct answer to an obvious question deliberately answered wrong to not stand out. Under those conditions. Because you can repeat it. And if you tell someone before the experiment, like, make sure you're honest, give your honest answer and pride them in that way, uh, the effect is gone. They will say the right answer. But without that priming. I would say that that is intervention of those same forces that you're trying to measure. Mm -hmm. Right. You're, you're, You're using an interaction between two people, which by definition is society to some degree a social interaction with which to influence the patterns of behaviors of another. Mm -hmm. What I'm more interested in is modern day application of that. So the first thing that pops to mind is echo chambers on social media. Mm -hmm. You surround yourself with people that you know have a similar mind and attitude as you. And you can generate some astronomically outrageous conclusions on both sides of the spectrum just because people adopt a set of, for lack of better term, biases. And I say that in a, in a neutral sense. Um, adopt a set of biases with which to be I mean, to be like water on the mountainside, right? To find the path of least resistance within yeah. the group. Now, to some degree, that's necessary because we do. We, we are social creatures. We cannot live by ourselves. We cannot live in isolation. And just like you said earlier, what the human next to me is doing is sometimes more important than reality is our reality, mm-hmm. right? We, we live in a... We experience the world in such a way, and the world is constituted in such a way that what actually exists from a psychological and metaphysical sense is not individuals and objects or individuals and other individuals. It's the relationship between, mm-hmm. right? There's always, always ever just a, a dyad. If there's no other person than me, then I have nothing with which to base the accuracy of my heuristics off of. Right. It makes me think, well, I think the other thing that is 
sort of understood, but I don't think like what you get attention for saying versus what just kind of gets ignored and attention being people yelling at you, telling you're an idiot to stop, you're a bigot, whatever. And then attention being like, yes, say that. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy. Someone said it. Both of those are attention. And sometimes it does not matter to the person which one they're getting as long as someone is responding to what they said, which is why the echo keeps going because this person got 20 comments on their post saying this, I'm going to say this. And the next person does yes. And yes. And, and you end up in some crazy hole where you believe the moon is hollow, which is, yeah. It's because I, I think, I think the primary motivational systems for both of those reinforcements are the same. Or at least they overlap enough to where deficiency in one can be partially made up for by excess in another. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, you see this all the time, or at least I do in my classrooms. Youth and adolescence that don't receive enough positive reinforcement, positive attention. Right. Any anybody that's been around a child knows that a child will get the attention it needs to thrive, or at least enough to get it through the day. And if it's not receiving positive attention, it will demand negative attention. Mm-hmm. Right? It, it's it's an attention deficit. Um, when I, I I liken it to, or I explain it as hunger. Right? If you have someone that's stranded out in the desert, you can give them a well with which to hydrate themselves and they'll be good. But in the absence of that, they will claw each other to death for a bottle of water to get them through the day. Mm-hmm. That's how, that's how I like in positive and negative attention. Right. For some people, well, there's kind of two parts to that for some people, they can't get the positive. So they get the negative. And then for other people, they genuinely like the negative attention more. Like it's exciting. It gets your blood pressure up. Someone's yelling at me. They're making eye contact. I feel excited. And then for, uh, and so some people think, you know, confrontation is fun and exciting and it's something that they just live for. I mean, and this isn't something that if you ask someone, they would understand or admit it, be like, yeah, I love getting yelled at. But if you keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it, you love getting yelled at. Which well, it, is that because they're teetering down the line of psychopathy or dark triad personality traits? Or is it because they've been conditioned in such a way? Right. Yeah, so, it so, comes down uh, to what's easiest to get. And well, and, and and I think I think for for that question that I posed, it's a little column A, a little column B, right? So there are at any given time anywhere from five five to ten percent of the population is considered psychopathic, right? They're they're narcissistic, they're hedonistic, they're manipulative, they're Machiavellian, and that's how they understand the world. If that number ever rises too high, then like shit starts to break down, and that's no good for anybody. Um, but 
I had one of my students a couple of years ago do an honors project essay and their research question was, are serial killers born or made? Mm-hmm. And the answer as far as we could find was yes. That there are, right? Because it, it's interesting that the way the brain is shaped, like form is always driven by function. So you change the way the brain is shaped and it's going to change its fundamental function. Otherwise, it would have evolved to be the shape that you changed it into, right? Um, mm-hmm. But also at the same time, like that's not predeterministic of anybody's future behaviors until combined with the right environmental parameters. So one of the studies that my students looked at was a adverse early childhood events study. And what it found was that with, I'm not going to say unerring accuracy, um, because I honestly can't remember the statistic on the top of my head right now, but it's somewhere near 70% overlap with adolescents exhibiting behavioral traits of lowered empathy, increased apathy, right? The, the baseline markers needed to be cruel and be psychologically okay with it tended to come from early environments that were aggressive, violent, abusive, neglectful, all of those things that that we know have negative impact on developing uh, a person's developing psychology. Yeah, the term that I like is, it's not your fault but it is your problem. Like you're born with this level, like you have X, Y, Z, your mom had X, Y, Z, her mom had X, Y, Z, and they all have beaten the shit out of each other and you're getting beat too. That's not your fault. But when you have kids, that is now your problem to deal with. And I think framing it that way is an empathetic enough to understand where it comes from, but not empathetic that you don't hold people accountable for their actions as adults. And yeah, because because I mean, we, it we don't feels want like to... a right space to be. Yeah, well, because and the general consensus among Western society, the past generation or so, or the, or the primary ethos, the driving ethos, has seemed seems to be something like unending compassion. And when we come back from our break, I'll explain what I mean by that. Right. So what I mean by compassion as the primary driving ethos in Western democracies is best best explained with an analogy. And that analogy is the typical parental dilemma, right? So as parents, we have children, and to some degree, it is our job to shelter our children from the world so that way they can grow up and be healthy and develop properly and not get beaten down by life too early. But when that becomes pathologized, it can become crippling. So we don't let our toddlers have knives to cut their food because we don't want them to cut themselves. 
But if you're always in perpetual fear of your child cutting themselves, you always cut their food for them. And now they don't learn how. Similarly, I could teach my kids to do laundry, but they might slam the lid closed on their hands. That could break one of their fingers. That's something to be avoided. That would be pain. That's bad. But if I always do their laundry for them, right? I'm not creating an environment with which they can learn healthily how to interact with the world and be successful. Rather, I'm creating an environment with which they develop a stream of pathologized dependency. And then I'm stuck with a 46-year-old man-child in my basement that's unable to exist outside of the protective wings of mother hen. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of that is what's happening. We, we That's the bubble wrap everything mentality. Right, starting with my generation in the 90s, we started seeing a really big trend with being overprotective. And I think we're dealing with the consequences of that now to some degree. Yeah, I'm thinking of like the stranger danger and guy in a trench coat and that type of absolutely useless, useless waste of resources and training kids to watch out. For snatchers and like black eye masks, because uh, it's inaccurate, not what happens. But no, like 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 a legitimate fear, but such a low percentage of everybody's collective lived experience that being overly protect protective now you're creating a person that can't go to Walmart and shop for themselves because they're surrounded by strangers and all of them are dangerous, right? It becomes a hindrance. Right. So the fine line then is giving your child experiences that are risky and increasing that risk as they age and gain independence Mm -hmm. without getting them killed. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's, it's Igor Vygotsky's zone of uh, proximal development, right? A task needs to be challenging enough for there to be a risk of failure, but supportive enough for people to be willing to take a risk. And it's in that very fine line balance point between the two that the optimum condition for efficient and effective learning occurs. Right. That we, we use that when we try and, um develop our lesson plans for the activities that our students are going to do if it's too easy everybody gets bored and now they get crazy because they're high schoolers that's what teenagers do if it's too difficult they don't even try they just put the pencil down they check out it has to be a balance between the two it has to be difficult enough to keep their attention and to be challenging and to be competitive but it has to be supportive enough and easy enough for them to know that they can do it Right. Otherwise, yeah, it is a balance. And when it's got to be super individualized as well, which is one of the issues if you have 37 people in your classroom, how do you make something that everyone will succeed on enough? Get that like magic 85% or whatever. 
Thankfully, we've got this cool thing called heuristics where we can um, lower the resolution of things enough to be bite-sized, more bite-sized digestible bits of information packed with enough laden and inherent transferable information for them to do something with, right? In in essence, that's what that's what language is. Um, I write the word bird, B-I-R-D, and that has with it a package of information. I mean, that, that's that's where the phrase of pictures worth a thousand words comes from, because there's so much information. What is a bird? How birds look? How they interact? What? How we relate with them? All of that is is hidden in with that word, and then it's the exchange of words in the um, coding on my end, articulation, reception on your end, and then decoding. That's how communication happens. I think something that's interesting with that is it definitely goes both ways where we put heuristics on others to better understand them. And that person is aware of what heuristic we're using and they will change their behavior to fit what we think Uh, usually subconsciously, but sometimes like purposefully like, Oh, this person thinks I'm smart. I'm going to study hard and be smart. This person thinks I'm an idiot. I'm not going to try. I'm going to fail everything. And it's uh, the like main study for that was the Philip Zimbardo experiment, which was like a hammer on that concept. Like we did not (laughs) need that uh, severe of uh, example, but we got it. Um, And that was the Stanford prison experiments where they were put into the role of prisoner and put into the role of jailer. And they began to act in the role that they were given, which is helpful for learning new things. You know, when, like, just going back to high school, I'm in math class, I'm learning math. I just knowing those two things tells you all of the rest of the stuff that you're supposed to do. Like, be quiet, get your book out, have a pencil. Uh, be nervous because it's math, like those type of social expectations, people will rise up to meet because they're aware of them. Um, And obviously you can deliberately not do that if you want. Um, But for the most part, it's easier to just do what people are expecting, which, you know, at the end of the day, those are like the roles which goes into like social norms, gender roles, family roles, your job. And it, yeah, the point was that it goes both ways. We put a heuristic on someone and they fill that as well. So uh, you can kind of have that like self-fulfilling prophecy where I think my child is extremely smart and capable. I'm going to push them. And the child also thinks they're smart and capable and is going to push themselves, which is in those cases pretty good, but it also works in negative ways as well. I would would think that so you're absolutely right. We tend to see that going back to my language and communication example, that most people I guess intuitively or instinctively, start 
decoding what they think I am coding as I'm articulating and transmitting. Right. Right. Um, and when, when those are aligned, when my heuristic for how I think you are expecting me to behave in this podcast lines up with how you're actually expecting me to behave in this podcast, then we do get those positive feedback loops and not in a runaway sense, but in a, that's when, I guess the the old phrase, like, it was just easy. Right? Things become efficient. They become fluid. We hit that flow state and, and things tend to work out. When they're very disaligned, that's when psychological disorders arise. I mean, to some degree, that's what anxiety is. Enough insecurity in how you think heuristics are being applied to you that it becomes crippling, you overanalyze, and you're unable to act effectively within those situations. Right. Like social anxiety specifically. Mm-hmm. Now, what's what's interesting, tying this back to social media, or even just media figures in general, because the human brain is extraordinarily capable at abstraction we can do that heuristic feedback loop on our own right we can pathologize a certain idea of how someone else real or fabricated or is laying expectations upon us and then we can act upon those expectations and then either use that to verify or invalidate those expectations all without interaction from another person. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, <clears throat> I guess to some degree, the technical term for that would be para- parasocial interaction or parasocial relationships where indeed we let our idea of some person other than us play out a an abstracted heuristic feedback loop yeah i'm struggling for an example though right so for for instance um i mean Hell, not to be too controversial, but just let's just dive right on in. Think about the whole what would Jesus do movement. Mm-hmm. Right. We have this whether Jesus was a real person or not is irrelevant. Whether his teachings in the Bible have any metaphysical, metaphorical, or or legitimate truth is completely irrelevant. What is relevant is we as a modern society have created this identity this abstracted identity that we are using to modify our own behavior. We find ourselves in a situation and we look to this 
and don't slay me for being too reductionistic with religious matters, but Jesus as the media personality, how would he handle this situation? And then we create that scenario and we apply those expectations to us. Mm-hmm. And we there, and you know, we use that as a way to try and either live up to or to validate that we're never going to be good enough, right? So that goes back to the whole positive negative thing. We can use it positively and we can create stability within our own lives. We can have psychological health, we can meaning, fulfillment, whatever. Or we can pathologize that the other way, right? And so, oh, well, I'm going to fail every single time by definition. If this character that I'm looking up to is the epitome of all goodness, then duh, I'm a flawed human. Of course, I'm going to fall short. So why even try? I'm just going to own my sins because you know what? It is what it is. The I have ended up with this whole sort of personal complex with the word parasocial because the people who coined that term, which I think was in the 60s as well, like when social psychology was kind of extremely popular and um, people were tuning in to see what was next down the research pipe. Um, the people who coined that term were artists, notably not psychologists. So it's become a popular term now because people use it to discredit the like relationship of a figure and their audience when like there comes to a point where like with videos specifically or podcasts um where you're hearing the person's voice and seeing them move uh but at minimum hearing their voice that the audience the person listening your people will say you know that's parasocial you don't know that person you feel emotions and a connection with this voice that you've been listening to and none of that's real. And my issue with that is it is real because our brains have not and will never be able to put words spoken in a video to us and words spoken in real life to us in different boxes because it's processed the exact same way. You put someone in an fMRI and looked at their brain when someone is standing in the room talking with them, or they're hearing it through headphones. All the same places light up, all the same processes take place. And I think that it's used to sort of undermine people who go crazy for like the artist that they like, or the YouTuber that they like, or the podcaster that they like, which is true. That's what happens. But saying that, you know, your feelings aren't real doesn't solve the problem. And it's adding to the problem because the person who like is that crazy stalker fan says, yes, my feelings are real. And the, I think the better thing to do is to educate people that that happens. Your brain is storing that information as if your neighbor just walked into your living room and started talking to you, which is why consuming media, podcasts, videos of people who are extremist or 
wrong or um like you might as if you wouldn't invite that person into your living room to talk to you face to face you shouldn't listen to them because your brain doesn't know that you're just tuning in for fun your brain the same thing with trying to guess the lines and the people next to you are saying a wrong answer and you say the wrong answer as well to fit in your brain doesn't know that that voice isn't a person sitting next to you in the room when it stores that and processes that information, which I think is why we see a lot of very extremist groups based on the internet that end up in real life and, for example, storm the Capitol. Um, and we're not being careful enough as people or educated enough as people in Americans that the media that you consume is influencing you for real. It nothing para about it. That is social interaction. And I think telling people that it's parasocial is harming them more than hurting them and it's not giving them the tools that they need to decide what am I going to listen to and what am I not going to listen to to protect yourself from being radicalized, which can happen to anyone and does happen to anyone. Yeah. Um, there's a lot to unpack there. I think definition-wise, if we take parasocial by what the word phonetically means as simply above or beyond social, it applies. Because that, that, that's not saying that one party isn't having an effect on the other because it is that that's one of the defining characteristics of a parasocial relationship is the inability of the person idealized to effectively and actually interact with the person who feels the deep connection and that's part of what was what I found terrifying about the, the line experiment is that we are wired for tribalism, right? We are wired to, to some degree, place the needs of the group over truth in a sense, you know, and part of that is for evolutionary survival tactics. Those that did, tended to survive and procreate at a higher degree than those that didn't. Those that didn't tended to invite confrontation, and especially the farther back in time you go, confrontation exponentially means more and more death. Right, 200,000 years ago as, as hunter-gatherers, if you broke your arm, there's an 80% chance you're not going to make it type thing. You know, mm -hmm. you can't hunt, you can't help, you can't feed, you can't fend off anything. Like, it's, you're going to get infected, it's not going to set right now, you're crippled for the rest of your life, however short and miserable that may be. Modern medicine does a lot to assuage the cruel reality of biological life for us. I will say that And this is part of why I tend to be a free speech absolutist just about is that without the ability to juxtapose good and bad ideas against each other, we have no way to validate why the good ideas are good and why the bad ideas are bad. 
right? Mm-hmm. So the same the same way that in face to face social interactions, it takes seeing the delinquents. It takes seeing the miscreants and the outliers and the troublemakers to remind us that our preferred social groups are our preferred social groups for a reason and that they're healthy for a reason, more or less, and that engagement in this set of behaviors has a higher chance of success rate than this set of behaviors. Now, when we're talking social media and the formations of parasocial relationships and parasocial interaction in in that capacity, the echo chamber thing makes it really difficult to keep that free market, that open exchange of ideas open. And it tends to reinforce one side or the other. Right. And so just like you're saying, it is really easy for us to get into a landslide. And by us, I mean the human species to get into a landslide of totalizing and dominating thoughts Mm -hmm. in the social media domain. But just like with anything, like you, you can't, you don't appreciate sunny days without rainy days. And you don't appreciate rainy days without sunny days. In the same way, we can't we can't expect people to fully understand the travesties that an ideology like fascism or Nazism causes without exposure to how radical those ideas are to begin with. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's why people still read Aristotle. He's wrong about a lot of stuff, especially when he starts getting towards the sciences. But it is directly comparing him to future thinkers that allows us to get access to for lack of better terms, and for, as a heuristic, truth. Same way, we look at you know, any of the major thinkers from any of the times pre-scientific revolution, and they're all wrong, more or less. There's like a, a 1% sliver that were like unreasonably accurate with everything that they did, right? Look at Pythagoras. Um, you know, a couple other, you know, a couple other of those people that there was the, the ancient Greek that used the length of shadows between Alexandria and another place in Egypt with which to measure the circumference of the earth. And he was correct down to like a hundred kilometers or some nonsense like that. Like that is mind blowingly accurate, but mm-hmm. almost everything else about what to do with that information has been wrong, but we don't discard it, right? People still read Karl Marx. Communism has some hundred million dead to its name just in the contemporary era if we include all of the forced, enforced famines and things like that. But we don't ban it because we have to understand it to prevent it from happening or at least to prevent the travesty it from happening. Um, So that's 
that's that's really tricky. How do you imbibe enough toxin to develop an immunity without killing yourself? I think for me the like I like I have a complex about this because I don't think people know that if a 6-year-old is glued to an iPad watching a video of a guy like making slime that might as well be in your house. That person, that woman, that man, whoever is in the video, if you wouldn't actually let them play with your child, they should not watch the video. It is the same thing. And I think like more education and awareness that this is not like it should be taken extremely seriously. And not that's not to say we need some government overreach to decide for us what we view and what we don't view. You just have to know that it will have the exact same effect as if it's happening in real life. And then you might go through all of that and say, yeah, I would have a conversation face-to-face with this person. I'd meet this person for coffee. I'd let this person watch my kid while I do the dishes. And then you know, that's fine. I At that point, you've gone through all of the proper checks and balances that you would do if it was in real life that you should be doing on video too. And so, especially with children and then with adults as well, at a certain point as an adult, you've built enough skills in order to say, you know, compare this view with what you believe and decide whether or not it fits or, or what you want to think and build your own opinion. And or at the very people, least, you're old enough to be held accountable. Yeah. And then other people, I think, don't realize, like, I'm thinking specifically of, like, Q people who are, like, absolutely nuts. And, like, that started as, like, opening an email or, like, seeing a post on Facebook or watching a conspiracy video, which are cool. That's an interesting thing. And then at the very end of the conspiracy video is like something cute, something that's not true. And you get to the end and you accept all this information and that just gets lumped in. And then over time, you might as well have been going and attending these cult meetings in person because the effects are the exact same. And and that's, it's even more pernicious and pervasive because the algorithms that most social media companies use tend to reinforce those decisions. So um, there tends to be a pattern in YouTube videos, for instance, that when you watch a, you know, entry-level conspiracy theory video, think ancient aliens on the History Mm. Channel or something like that. Some fun stuff. Yeah, which I mean, interesting questions, right? In in most of which, rationally, are probably you know just a crock of shit. But in the absence of alternative evidence, they're fun to have, you know, to play around with those ideas. Um, there's enough to beg the question in some instances. But you watch those videos, and YouTube tends to increase the depth of radicalization in the videos that it suggests to you because it knows with its algorithm that that's going to keep your attention and we are in an attention economy um likewise if 
now this has probably been changed because it's been circling the podcast for the past couple of years. Um, if you create a YouTube account and like you're registered as like a teenage girl or something like that, and you look up videos for the latest super healthy diet or whatever, what tends to happen is YouTube will promote anorexia videos to you. Right to to it's taking that core concept. Hey, how can I be a healthier me? And it's reinforcing that pathologized view. Right, and I think something that because I do watch conspiracy videos. I love conspiracy videos. I think they're so fun. And for me, the more that you do that, like. I mean, it happens all the time, like where you see people kind of flip over the years. I'm thinking of people who like, you know, Scientology is a good example where like you read about it, you make fun of it. That's ridiculous. Spaghetti monster in the sky, blah, blah, blah. And then five years later, you're making donations. They're, they're in it. Yeah. <laughs> Which you have to be aware that when you interact with those worldviews, that it can influence you into believing them too. And being aware that that's going to happen and noticing that is really, I think, the only thing that we can do because you can't say we're going to ban all Scientology videos from YouTube, starting with the ones that make poke light fun and then, you know, working your way down to the ones that are like absolutely serious. Like, let's put out a hit on people who leave the church. Like, they, it's, are they called a church? I don't know. Um, I don't think they, I think they call them. So. I think they call themselves a church. Okay. Um, so they, right. Like the answer is not ban it and restricting this information. Cause we know that that doesn't work. Also it's impossible. Um, and it's a slippery slope and the mm -hmm. way to get around that and to protect people is to educate them on what can and will happen. And like the phrase is like, you are not immune to propaganda and being aware of that. And being able to identify propaganda and identify when someone is trying to influence you and then use those skills that you've learned to decide, do I actually want to believe this and go down this path? Or am I just having fun and just watching videos and I need to go watch some cat videos now to like reset how I'm feeling? And if and that's why I hate the term parasocial, because it puts up a barrier and makes you feel like you're safe doing that when it's your brain has no clue it is being processed the same way so yeah my goal would not be to restrict those things but to let people know if you wouldn't go and attend the talk in person you might not want to watch this video and I think written language does have written language is processed a little bit differently. Like you can similarly, but differently. So you're a little bit safer reading about it because your brain knows that's not a person talking to you. So it well, is processed differently and a little bit better. And I would have to imagine that because we know that because language is a heuristic, it's standardized at least contemporarily um and what it's used for is to 
efficiently categorize things. So it tends to be left hemisphere processed dominant. Right, because that's what the, that's what the left hemisphere of the brain tries to do. It tries to see categorize quickly and effectively to reach destination. When a bird's flying through the sky, looking at the ground for seed, that's its left left hemisphere, ignoring all of the other gestalt, all of the other factors of the world to hyper-focus to be able to pick the seed out of the grass on the ground, nothing else. And so we get, we categorize and we do things, and that's what language does. Navigating in groups, navigating in person, navigating in complex three-dimensional space tends to be right hemisphere process dominant because what are you doing you're not navigating from point a to point b like you would drawing a line on a piece of paper right that's that's left hemisphere that's very intent driven goal driven categorize process get the task done move on instead what we're doing we're navigating these fields of potential if I act this way, how will that person act? How will that influence my next behavior? We're subconsciously playing these hyper-realistic chess games with our environment as we as we physically navigate through them, right? So I think I think you would be absolutely right in that language is processed differently now, meaning meaning less susceptible to. the in-person influences of radicalization right that's a little more protective yeah because like what does the right hemisphere of the brain do the right hemisphere of the brain zooms out so it can take in the totality of something it could take in the gestalt it looks at the relationships between all of the individual parts to understand the whole that is greater than the sum of the parts. And if that doesn't describe a social interaction, I don't know what else would describe it better. Right. Cause that's exactly right. what we're doing. Right. When I'm, when I'm in a classroom, I'm not worried about what this particular student thinks or needs. I am, but that's only like one twentieth. Right. I'm also trying to balance how is this student going to interact with this student? How is the combination of those two interacting going to affect my table group over here? How can I address all of their needs? That's right hemisphere work. That's not left hemisphere. When I'm sitting down and I'm grading their papers like I was earlier today, that is left hemisphere work. Addressing the individual particulars for their accuracy and then grading them accordingly. Right. So I do I do think that there would be some merit to saying that reading radicalizing material, especially in like a seminar setting, a Socratic circle, if you will, a hell, the neighborhood freaking book club once a week, right? With which to dismantle the ideas and understand the truth of the ideas and whether the ideas have inherent truth with them right is way safer than engaging in practices that light up like fireworks all of our social reward systems Max are just busted in the room um so yes there is 
still, our brains are very good. Like if you sit down and imagine a conversation in your head, you can see that on an fMRI that someone is having a conversation, even though they're not talking and they're not hearing anybody. The same parts of your brains are used for that. Um, so all of that to say, your reading, you can still get that effect. Your brain can still have those words as someone is speaking them to me. It's conversational. Um, and you have to jump through a couple of hoops to do that. And it's a little more effortful, which is why it's not, why it's still going to influence you, but not like a video will. Um, mm-hmm. And I think even with like today, book bans for in schools and school districts are so stupid. And people, this those same people who are banning Harry Potter in school are going home and letting their children watch whatever they want on YouTube, as if the book is going to influence them more than the video. And it's just a misplace of priority and like a misplace of trying to protect children from XYZ, which is whatever, but not knowing what to actually do, which is the point of social psychology and studying it and figuring out this is the goal. How do we actually do that? Because this isn't working. We've been doing it wrong. These people figured it out and didn't tell anyone. Like, how do we spread the correct information so that people can be influenced and influence others in the way that they actually want to and intend to without accidentally and sometimes purposefully creating a world war. Well, and to the the greatest degree of benefit for all parties involved. Usually. Right. Um, Okay. I think that's a good place to stop unless you got anything else. We got like 30 seconds. Uh, Yeah, I don't think we came full circle kind of hoping uh conversation went how i expected which might be the first time this has happened on our podcast yeah practice makes perfect mm-hmm. all right well um next time social psychology part two all right see you then